We're in Hebrews chapter 5 this morning. Uh, you should have gotten a handout when you came in. If not, they're, they were by Chrissy. They still are by Chrissy. So she's going to pass those around for us. Maybe LOL. I'm not sure how this is going to happen. But you can get a handout somehow. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5 verses 11 through 6, 12. And so last time we were together in Hebrews, which was a couple weeks ago, Matt kind of set up this lesson for me of the high priestly ministry of Melchizedek. He said it's going to be excellent to a level that I could never achieve. Uh, Explain everything you want to know about this kind of weird, mysterious character from the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills his ministry, which is all true, but it's just not today. Um, We don't get there until chapter 7. Instead, at the end of chapter 5, the author's like, and Jesus is the high priest according to Melchizedek. Let's take a side road. We're going to have another warning segment. And then we'll come back in in chapter 7 through 10 and talk about Jesus' priestly ministry, which is kind of the, the doctrinal heart of the entire book of Hebrews. So he says, before we get into the, you know, Hebrews has been easy so far. Before we get into the tough stuff, I need to talk to you pastorally. A bit. It seems he wanted to get into those doctrines, but he just couldn't yet. And as we read this text, we'll see see why. So let me let me read uh, Hebrews five eleven through six twelve for us about this, which is Christ being designated as an eternal high priest. That's what we saw last time. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God, and instructions about washings, the laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. About this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age of age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith 
and patience inherit the promises. In his commentary on the book of Hebrews, Dr. R. Albert Moeller tells a story of when he was 10 years old, he went up to his father, Dr. R. Albert Moeller Sr., and said, Dad, Dr. R. Albert Moeller Sr., I don't know how he talked in his house. He says, Dad, I have a tummy ache. And his dad looks at him and goes, Dr. R. Albert Moeller Jr., you're 10 years old. You don't have a tummy. You have a stomach. And, and, you know, what, 40, 50 years later when he's writing this commentary, he still remembers this event in his life. Because even though those words were spoken in love, they bit a little bit. He knew that they were correct. His maturity level and his vocabulary were not lining up. And it was time for him to grow up. Our author of Hebrews, in that same fatherly love, has words that kind of bite us a little bit today. Um, He has that same message. It's time for the church to grow up. So this morning, I want to show you from these verses the moral and the mortal dangers of perpetual spiritual immaturity, along with a mandate to mature in the faith so that we ourselves would not be lazy in our faith, leading us to fall away from the living God. So let's start with with point one here, the moral danger of spiritual immaturity. I'm getting getting this from verses 5.11 through 6.3. The moral danger, the, the sinful nature of perpetual immaturity, which is basically saying if you've been in the church for a while now, and you've never matured in your faith, you are in an incredibly dangerous place. Because of the Hebrew church's immaturity, the author wanted to go on and talk doctrine, but he couldn't because the people had not yet grown in their faith to where they could understand about Christ's priesthood. They didn't have an intellectual problem like, well, this doctrine's too hard for you to understand. Why don't you go off to seminary for a year, come back, and then we'll teach you. They had a moral problem, a sin problem. They had become dull in hearing so that they did not want to understand. They're sluggish, they're dull, they're lazy, depending on what translation of the Bible you're using. And that word that the ESV translates dull here in 511 is the same word in 612, the last verse of our passage, that's translated sluggish. It kind of brackets our text, showing this one idea runs through the whole text, that you are dull in your hearing and you need to grow up. Because as Christians, we have a moral responsibility to know the Word of God and to understand what it teaches. Like, God gave us a big book, not so that we could be ignorant and immature, but so that we would know Him, so that we would invest ourselves in this book to know our God. And the reason somebody doesn't grow up in the faith is not because they're too dumb to understand, not because God's word is too hard for them, but the text says it's because they're lazy. Their heart is sluggish. They don't want to move towards God. They don't want to invest time in their relationship with God. They'd rather go and do other things, and so they don't put in the work to grow in their faith. They are in sin because of their perpetual immaturity. Let me show you the three problems that the author of Hebrews says to his church. Um, We can decide if this describes us or not. 
He says to them, you should be discipling, but you haven't even gotten out of the basics yet. That's in verse 12. After being in a church for some time, your role is to teach, not necessarily like in the way that I'm doing right now, but to evangelize your neighbors, to teach your children the faith, to disciple those who are younger in the faith than you. But in their sluggishness, they're not able to teach yet. They're still trying to learn the basics, ABCs of the faith, when they should be teaching others those things. In 12b through 14, he says, you should be discerning, but instead you're unskilled. So Christian discernment means that Christians are in familiar territory when they're trying to honor God. They instinctively know what to do to honor God. So an unskilled immaturity would say, you know what? I don't want to think through what the Bible says. I don't want to think through my life. Just give me a list of what to do. You know, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with girls who do. And then if I do that, I'm good. If somebody else does, doesn't do that, I'm going to judge them. And it breeds kind of this legalistic, judgmental culture where being discerning means I can think through these issues. We can take, you know, don't smoke. Okay, is there a commandment against that? Are there principles that apply to this? Are there examples from Scripture of things that, you know, went well for someone in a good example or poorly in a bad example? Is there any wisdom that should be involved? And how do I think through these issues on my own instead of saying, just give me a list and I will follow every point? No, we're called to be discerning, to be nuanced, to not just be black and white, but to understand all the shades of gray that life brings us to be discerning in this present age. The Bible doesn't address every single situation you're going to face, even today, in this week, in this life. But a mature Christian knows how to discern what the Bible says about that issue, even if it doesn't directly address it. And so we're in familiar territory when we're in the scriptures. But immature people, he says, they're not trained in righteousness. They don't know how to act in righteousness if they don't have a list telling them what to do. They're like a little baby asking for milk when they should be sitting down to the juicy, medium, rare porterhouse. Which, like, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with milk. When, when Ella goes to the pediatrician, Henry Ford's doctors say there's nothing more healthy for her than milk. When the babies at the other end of the building are crying because they want milk, that's fine. That's normal. When this end of the building's crying for milk because meat is too much, then we have significant issues. They are immature when they should be discerning. And third, they should be digging into the depths of Scripture. But instead, they're retaking Christianity 101 for the 14th time. You know, I've never built a house, but I've binge-watched HGTV before. And I know the first thing you do is you pour a foundation, and then you can, I don't know, stud it out, do HVAC, electricity, roof, all that stuff. Foundations are essential but you only lay them once. Instead of building, though, they're laying the foundation again and again and again and again. Things about repentance and rituals and judgment. That's my summary of the six things listed there. By this time, you know, they should be touching up the paint on their crown molding when the house is about complete. But again, they're laying down these foundations of learning of what it means to repent, to have faith. 
and what's coming in the future. So we got to ask, like, are these descriptions of the Hebrew church hitting a little bit too close to home for us? Am I describing the immature faith that we have? Because if so, you need to grow in the faith. You're in a very dangerous position. Or has there been a time when you're like, I became a Christian, I grew in my faith, and then somewhere around 2016, I've just been plateaued since then. I'm not growing. I'm just, you know, I'm like a teenager. I'm not a child. But I'm just stuck here. If we're not consistently growing in our faith, we are in a very scary place to be. Because like I said, this is not an intellectual issue. I'm not saying that, you know, we're not smart enough to understand. The text says, if this is you, you're being lazy in your walk with God. And it's a moral issue. It's a sin. And in verses 4 through 8, we see it's not just a moral danger that we're in sin. It's a mortal danger. It can lead to our death. Or maybe I should say an immortal danger, not just physical death, but eternal death separated from God. So these four verses are difficult. Let me summarize what they're teaching, and then we'll go back and I'll explain how I got there. Um, So let's just say for a minute, you are the spiritually immature person and you refuse to grow up, then what? You're in a state of perpetual immaturity. You're not committed. You're not growing. And immaturity is the front porch on the house of apostasy. It's one step away from falling away from the faith. The world comes for you. For the Hebrews, persecution was coming. They're plundering their goods if you're a Christian. They're throwing you in prison for being a Christian. A couple years out from when this book's written, they're throwing you in a coliseum for being a Christian. So in in your immature faith, you start scheming. Okay, well, when I was a Jew, I didn't have issues. When I was sacrificing lambs, I didn't have issues. When I was showing up to the synagogue instead of the church, I didn't have issues. Maybe I should do that again. It seems like safety is in the law and danger is in Christ. You're not mature enough to realize how terrible of a thought that is. And so you turn your back on the faith to put you in a place of safety without realizing that earthly safety leads to spiritual death. Because now if you've turned your back on Christ, there's no hope for you. If you've received the benefits of the gospel and then turned from them, it's impossible, verse 4 says, for you who have experienced the fullness of God's blessings and then reject it to be saved. Because where else are you going to go for, for salvation? If you're rejecting Christ's crucifixion for your sins, What are you going to hold on to to save you from your sins? You can't simultaneously reject the cross and cling to the cross. You can't do both at the same time. You hate Christ's crucifixion by turning away. So what are you going to do? Crucify him again for your sins? I rejected his first crucifixion, but now I'm going to crucify him again? No, there's no hope for you if you're rejecting the crucifixion. You can't simultaneously reject Christ and hold on to Christ and be saved. So what's your end? The, 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 the illustration tells us here, you know, 
you're like the field who bore up thorns and thistles and its end, not the end of the thorns and thistles, the end of the field is to be burned because you did not hold fast, you did not produce good fruit that is useful to the master. So, so the author of Hebrews says, take this warning. If you are on the front porch of apostasy, look at this warning. Don't step inside the house. Rather, flee down the street to maturity as fast as you can run and get away from the danger of falling away. Okay, how did I get there? These are probably four of the most debated verses in the New Testament. So everybody's wondering, okay, Dan, how did you get there? Um, so Friday afternoon, I had my, you know, every other year routine eye exam. I can still see. I'm in my 30s, and I can see, so that's a miracle. Um, you know, so they put the chart up on the wall, E, F, Q, H, P, N, W, whatever it is. And then they put the, the glasses down in front of you. Can you see? Th- are you comfortable? No, I'm not comfortable, but, but keep going. Like, let's just get through this. Lens, which is better, one or two? One. One or three? Three. Three or four? Four. You know, you know, everybody's been, you know how this works. And with the lenses, some of the lenses make the text on the wall more clear for you, and other lenses make it more blurry. It makes it less clear. In the same way, everybody approaches the Bible with a set of lenses they're looking through. And a lot of us will come to Hebrews 6 with this set of lenses where we see everything through once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. So we have to be like, well, Dan said if I turn away from Christ and I'm going to hell, so like now I need to pay attention to figure out why Dan is wrong. Let's listen up and let's prove Dan wrong. Um, And while Scripture never contradicts itself in its teaching, Scripture is unified in what it teaches throughout the whole Bible, You're basically saying then, I don't care what the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to say to me. I care about my understanding of the Bible as a whole, and I'm going to be like, you know, my toddler who's very consistently trying to get her square block through the round hole. And it just doesn't work. Rather, the more helpful lens to put on is a lens of humility, saying, okay, this is tough. I maybe don't understand how this fits. But in my humility, I'm going to accept the fact that the author of Hebrews and the Holy Spirit know what they're saying. If there's a better way to say it, then God would have said it more clearly. But he said it the way he did. And I'm going to take this text at face value. And if that means afterwards, I need to do some hard work to figure out how this text and my understanding of perseverance, once saved, always saved, the endurance of the faith, whatever you want to call it, um, are going to fit together, then I'm going to do the hard work of figuring out how it matches. I'm just not going to say, I don't care what this text says because I need to put it in my understanding of the Bible as a whole. So since it's a hard text, let's just ask some basic questions here. So who's this warning talking about? Verses 4 and 5 lay out five different descriptions of the person. And I think they clearly and decisively are saying, this person's a Christian. Like, I don't know how we can get around that when we're approaching the text humbly. Let me just give two of these, and then, I mean, I have footnotes of the other three, but we don't have time to get there. Um, So look at verse 4. 
they have shared in the Holy Spirit. In my mind, this one is just like the nail in the coffin that these guys are Christians. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. All throughout the New Testament, the Spirit is given as a sign and a seal of one's salvation. Ephesians 1.14, He is the down payment of your inheritance of glory. You know that you're getting heaven because you have the Holy Spirit. And the word shared here, they've shared in the Holy Spirit. It's a full experience. It's the word that we just read in 5.13. They're drinking milk. They're ingesting. That's the same word here. Or in 2.14, think back a few chapters, it says, Jesus shared in flesh and blood. So the same way Jesus shared in flesh and blood, these people share in the Holy Spirit. They fully have the Holy Spirit. And just think, what else does the Bible say about people with the Holy Spirit? Paul says in Romans 8 9, if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian. But if you do have the Holy Spirit, then you are a Christian. You have confidence that you are of God because you have the Holy Spirit. Or we can think Acts chapter 15. Um, Paul and Barnabas come back from a missionary journey and they're celebrating that a bunch of Gentiles got saved. So the church does the most Baptist thing the church can do, and they call a special business meeting to decide, can God save Gentiles or not? And after there had been much debate, Acts 15.7 says, we've all been there. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said, God himself bore witness that they were saved by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did for us. The Holy Spirit is exhibit A that closes down the argument. The Gentiles were given the Holy Spirit without keeping the law. So how are you going to say they weren't saved? If they have the Holy Spirit, just like we have the Holy Spirit, then surely you don't need to keep the law to be saved. Surely Gentiles can keep the law because they have the Holy Spirit. And nobody can argue against that. The Gentiles have the Spirit. They are Christians. No one who is not a Christian has the Holy Spirit. Everyone who is a Christian absolutely has the Holy Spirit. So if they've shared in the Holy Spirit, these people have to be Christians. Second look at the phrase right before that one. They've tasted the heavenly gift. Now, what the heavenly gift is isn't certain. I think it's salvation. It's the gift that comes from heaven. Um, But we don't know what it is decisively, but we know this. They have been fully immersed in it. And I bring this up because some people will be like, oh yeah, tasted. I know that verb, tasted. It's like when we went wine tasting. It's like when we went coffee tasting the other day. This is why I don't make up illustrations on the spot. It always ends poorly. And you know, actually in coffee tasting, I worked in the specialty coffee industry before coming here. You never actually drink the coffee. You go, and you slurp it off a spoon, and then, and then you spit it out. Kind of just, I'm like, just drink the coffee. But they know what they're doing. They get paid a lot. So they, they taste the coffee. They spit it out just so they can get, you know, the notes of what it tastes like and then move on to the next one. Okay, so let's, let's cool our jets, Dan. They've just tasted the holy or the heavenly gift. They haven't fully drank it. So therefore, these are people who have come into the church. They've joined the Bible study. They're in the small group. They've been baptized, but they're not actually Christians. They're deceived. They're almost Christians. They think they're Christians. But the problem with this is, if we think that's what tasted meant, then we're going to have issues with Hebrews 2.9, 
where the same author in the same sermon says Jesus tasted death for everyone. We know Jesus didn't just dabble in death. Jesus fully died. His heart stopped. He was buried for three days. He didn't just dabble in death, but he fully experienced it. These people just didn't dabble in the heavenly gift. They fully experienced it. These people have to be Christians. And the three other descriptions are stronger. Those are just the two clearest ones I want to bring up. These are pointing to Christians. So what's the problem that we're dealing with? Um, Verse 6 says they've fallen away. We're talking about decisively leaving the faith. You know, in their case, they're going back to the law for their salvation instead of trusting Christ because they want to avoid persecution. It's what 2 verse 1 or 3 verse 1 would call drifting away or neglecting salvation. Or 3.12, it's falling from the living God. It's a deliberate sin shown in chapters 10, 26 through 31. It's saying, I no longer want to follow Christ. Christ's cross means nothing to me. I'm going somewhere else. It's leaving the faith. And verse 6 says they can't repent because there's no crucifixion left for them. They have rejected Christ's crucifixion. They've rejected his sacrifice for sin. So if they're going to be saved, they have to somehow re-crucify Christ, holding him up to open shame, which is not something that the Son of God does. It's the action of his enemies. And so what's the result? Eternal damnation, not reaching heaven. The illustration makes this clear. It's, it's a simple picture, really. There's a field that receives the blessings from God, the rain. If it produces crops, it's harvested. It's pleasing to the master. If it produces thorns and thistles, it's cursed and it's burned. Eternal judgment is the result of falling away from God. So this warning saying, if a Christian rejects Christ and falls away from the faith, his end is eternal damnation. And this probably makes us super uncomfortable right now. But that's the clear meaning of the text if we let it speak to us and we look at it with eyes of humility instead of saying, this has to fit what I want it to say. So why the warning? This is probably the biggest question that we have to answer. Why the warning? Look back up at verse 4, right? The first word here. For it is impossible. This warning because of the four, is clearly linked to point one, that spiritual immaturity puts you in danger. The author is not accusing his addressees of being in this condition. He's making a warning that should remind them of the seriousness of their sluggishness and the serious importance of renewing their commitment to God. Apostasy is where their sluggishness could lead. Not has led, the author's not saying some of you have already done this or you're certainly going to do this. It's a warning. If you keep doing this, this is where it's going to lead. In their sluggishness and sinful immaturity, they're in mortal danger. It's a sign of if you continue down this path, this is where it's going. So turn back. So when we went back to my, my summary of what this taught, I introduced it intentionally by saying, let's say that somebody was a Christian but was immature. It's in the realm of potential. It's not saying, historically, this is what happened. It's saying, 
Here's what could happen if you fall away. The warning is so you wake up and you don't drift away. It's to shake you out of your lazy stupor of immaturity and make you grow up saying, don't totter on the edge of apostasy in your immaturity. Rather flee to Christ. Run to him. There's only two options for you. Run to Christ and grow up or you're going to drift away downstream with the world and fall away. Or to use the illustration from Hebrews 2, if you don't tie up your ship in the harbor, it's going to drift out to sea. So take pains, take effort to grow in the faith. One of the things my dad would do when we were kids, well, my mom just sat in the car worrying about us, is we would go out on the Frankfurt Pier. And on a nice day, we would all go out on the Frankfurt Pier. Um, but when it was windy and the sea, the, 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 not the sea, the lake was rough and the waves were crashing up, only my dad would go out with us. I mean, picture any generic pier in your mind. You get the Frankfurt Pier going out into Lake Michigan, lighthouse on the end, big concrete sides. So the waves would come up, they would hit the walls, they would shoot straight up 15 feet in the air, and then it kind of rain down on the pier. You almost feel like Moses walking through the Red Sea on it. And we would walk out to the lighthouse. And as we did, my sister and I would never, you know, walk as close as we could to the water because the waves were terrifying. Rather, we knew we need to walk right down the center of the pier, right next to my dad, because that's where safety was at. Even I, as a kid, I understood this. We don't want to get as close to danger as we can we want to walk next to our Father where it's safe. That's what this text is giving us for. It's saying there are waves on the edges of the pier. If they catch you, you're going to fall in and you're going to die. So stay as close as you can to your Father who won't let anything happen to you. Don't get washed away. Keep your eyes on God. Wake up to the danger. Follow him. Stick with him. Stay close to him. Cling to him. So, before I get misunderstood, I've tried to be very clear here, and people start spreading this rumor that Dan doesn't believe in eternal security. Dan's teaching that you can lose your salvation. Let me say this clearly. Scripture teaches that all God's people will persevere in faith until the end. And the way that people persevere in faith to the end is by the means that God gives them like the church speaking the truth to them so they're not hardened by sin, chapter 3, verse 13. Or in our times of weakness, praying to Christ, our great high priest, for help, 4.16. Or by hearing the consequences of not holding fast so they're woken up and mature in the faith. So we take this warning in one hand and say, if you forsake the Lord, you are going to hell. And on the other hand, we grab verses like Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what I have purposed. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Or we grab Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord? 
and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces, God's word in itself, because it comes from God, contains power. It always accomplishes its purpose. So those who are mature hear God's word. They hear this danger. They hear this warning, and they flee to God because of it. They say, okay, God, if you are saying, if I don't grow up in my faith, that I'm going to fall away and be condemned, I'm going to do whatever it takes then to grow up. I am going to do whatever I need to do to stay with you, to be mature, to inherit these promises. I'm going to get down on my knees and pray that you keep me. I am going to get my nose in this book to learn what you say, to grow up in the faith. I am going to plead with God to keep me near the cross. I am taking every opportunity that I have to grow up in the faith so that this warning is not about me. I want to walk in holiness so that I do not fall away. This passage is meant to scare us into maturing in the faith because that's the means God gives to us in his perfect loving wisdom to keep us persevering so that all who are saved persevere until the end. All right, quickly, part three, the mandate of maturity, verses six, or chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. After the strong and significant warning we just received, the author's encouraging his people now. He's, he's giving them assurance that they're not falling away, that they're not the land to be burned, that they can have assurance, verse 11, they can have assurance of hope until the end, even in light of this warning. The, the application he makes isn't, hey, you guys aren't Christians, repent and be saved. It's not, hey, you guys, you might be Christians, you might not be, you probably want to examine your hearts and make sure you're saved. No, the, 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 the application he gives is grow up into maturity. God's already done a work in you, so quit being immature and grow up into what God has made you. Why? Because God is just and he carries into glory all of those whom he saves. Verse 10. They have loved God. They have loved God's name. They have promoted God's glory. And that love for God has overflowed in their hearts into a love for the saints. We see that in verse 10. And it didn't just, you know, one time they loved the saints. They're still doing it. They're loving others for God's sake. And that's evidence that they are indeed truly Christians. We love God by loving others. He commands them then, keep going. Keep running. Don't get lazy. Don't be sluggish. Keep running. Build your faith. Love more. Understand more. Love more. Understand more. Love more. Keep maturing. Keep going. Keep running. Keep on moving. Be eager to serve one another. Don't be sluggish in your faith. Again, that word that we saw at the very beginning. But rather, work it out eagerly with all your might. Grow up into the faith. Patiently persevere for God's sake. Serve others for God's name as you're waiting for this promise of the eternal inheritance. Learn what it means to be a Christian. Start eating steak. Steak's delicious. Don't be stuck on the milk. Grow up in the faith. There are glories there, so continue pressing forward 
and all the energy Christ has to do those good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do, Ephesians 2.10. The message that we get as a church is it's time to grow up. Our maturity in the faith needs to match our maturity that we've been calling ourselves Christians. That means we need to be eager to learn. We need to not sin against the word of God and the God who gave it by being ignorant of God's word. We're always growing. We're always studying. We're always maturing in our understanding of the faith. And it means that we're eager to love. This isn't an intellectual type thing. It's interesting. The sign of immaturity in point one is that you don't know your Bibles. But the sign that Christ saved you and that you're growing up in point three is you're loving each other. These things are connected. You can't separate them. If you're growing in your knowledge of Scripture, you better be growing in your love for people. And if you're growing in your love for people, it better be because you're growing in your love for God through the Scripture. If we're stagnant in our faith, both intellectually and relationally, then we're in a serious danger. We are on the doorsteps of falling away. So do whatever it takes to rouse yourself from a sluggish, sinful dullness and grow up in the faith. So, cool, I have 45 seconds left. Let me give us, you know, a couple ways to do this. You're like, okay, I agree. Like, you got excited. You yelled a little bit. Like, okay, what do I do to grow up in the faith? Let me give you some ideas. These are not, you know, silver bullets of, okay, if you do this, then surely you're going to be fine. But here's the means by which you can grow up. So if you're a guy, show up here tomorrow at 7. Study John. Love the brothers. Come to the Bible studies that are offered to you. It's, a, it's offered so that you will grow up in the faith. Uh, prioritize hearing the word of God. Like, if you're not usually here in Sunday school, usually be here in Sunday school. If you don't take seriously the Sunday morning worship service where the word is preached to you, prioritize it. Say, this is more important than sleeping in. This is more important than my kids' sports. This is more important than my job, whatever it is. Let it be more important. Let it be the most important thing to grow up into maturity in God. Um, apply what you're learning. There's a danger on Sundays to come and be like, okay, I heard Hebrews, I heard Matthew, and now I live my week. I've heard it. Is that good enough? It's good. Like, I'm glad you heard it. I just said to hear it. But apply it. Apply it in love. Work out what you're learning. Sluggishness can, can be in, you know, applying what we've learned as well. I'm, I'm happy to hear as long as it doesn't mean anything for me. But work it out. Do those acts of love that Hebrews 6, 9 through 12 talk about. Grow in serving the saints. Show up to the kids' meeting. Tell Sue, hey, I want to volunteer. Fill out an application. Do the background check, all that. And start serving in the fours through six or the nursery or the twos and threes. How can you love the saints? Go visit the elderly. Visit the shut-ins. Write an encouraging note to a deacon. Like, I'm sure that, like, nobody knows what the deacons are doing, but they're working hard. Encourage them. Help Cliff get his house ready to sell. Um, you know, whatever it takes. You're welcome, Cliff. You can pay me afterwards. <laughs> whatever it takes to love the saints, work on loving them. Serve the saints. 
Find someone you think is mature and ask them to help you. Hey, can you help me grow up? I have no idea what I'm doing. Can you walk beside me? Can you help me read the Bible? Can you help me understand the Bible? Grow up in maturity. Read your Bible daily and pray. You think, that's, that's, this is, a, is this a read your Bible lesson? Yes, this is absolutely a read your Bible lesson. You're not going to grow in knowing God if you're not reading the word that God has given us so that we would know him. Pray to him. Read your Bible daily. Have family devotions. Men, fathers, husbands, lead your family through these things. That's going to force you to be out in front of them so that you can lead. Lead your family, family devotions. Instead of listening to NPR or whoever the talking heads are, turn on a good podcast on your commute. Listen to somebody who faithfully teaches the Bible. Listen to a sermon. Listen to um, some sort of lecture. Listen to topical issues. Listen to a Christian news station so that you can learn how do I discern what righteousness is. Um, If you want suggestions, I have way too many on my phone. Read better books. Christmas is coming. What can I get you for Christmas? Not me personally, other people. What, what do you want for Christmas? I want, I don't know, Robert Leckham's Lech- new systematic theology. That's probably a little bit too high. Um, but be like, what's a good book? What are some of the books that we sold at Fellowship in the Gospel? Hey, Jeff, what book should I get for Christmas? Like, what should I ask for? How can I read and fuel my faith? Um, By reading better stuff. Learn everything you can about God and cling to him. The more we know of God, the more we're going to love God. The more we know of scripture, the more we're going to love scripture. The more we know of our family of faith, the more we're going to love them. So do whatever it takes to grow up into maturity, to cling to Christ, to know him through his word, and then have that love fuel in your heart, a love for all the saints. We speak this way in harsh warnings, but in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So grow up into maturity. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, these are harsh words. These are words that bite. These are words with, um, with teeth in them. And they're scary and they're maybe confusing, but you gave them to us so that we would understand what they're saying. So I pray that we would heed this warning, that we wouldn't be arrogant to think, that warning's not for me. That's for somebody else. That's for, that's for the other people and the, the, you know, the watered-down churches that are out. No, Lord, help us to see that these warnings are for us, that all of us stand in the danger of stalling out in our walk with you and becoming dull of hearing and becoming lazy and sluggish and then turning our backs on you. So help us to... Take this means that you have given us. You are kind in warning us of the dangers. And so I pray that we would listen, that we would hear your word, that we would repent of our laziness, that we would grow in our knowledge and our understanding of you, that we would be like adults who discern things instead of being untrained babies and that our love for you would overflow into a joyful love for all the saints. 
Lord, we pray this in Christ's holy name. The only one who can do this in our hearts is Christ. So we pray in his name. Amen.